Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonic's aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonic's Flight Podcast. This is episode number 27, Sonic's Handling Qualities. This episode will attempt to describe the handling feel and the personality of the Sonics. We'll draw some comparisons to a few other GA and home-built aircraft, and we'll give some insights as to why the Sonics has such a a loyal following among Sonics pilots. And uh, simply put, we all love the way they fly, and we're going to tell you all about it. So with that, we'll jump right in. I'm your host, Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. And joining me, as always, my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. John flies his YX from his eastern Colorado airpark home. John's best known for his custom modifications, including his speed cowl, the uh, the fastest YX cowl on the planet, I might add. His, uh, his tilt-back canopy, his toe brake mods, uh, all that other good stuff. So, uh, John, well, what have you been up to recently? Well, I went to the, uh, the Jabiru Clinic this last weekend, and I have to say, we are celebrities because three guys came up to me after I mentioned my name at the back of the class, and they said, now I have a face to the name or to the voice. I listen to all your podcasts. They're great. So we're celebrities. Good. <laughs> Infamous. <laughs> so what did you think of the seminar? Oh, it was really good. I, I really got a good, um, you know, I never looked inside of a Jabiru, obviously, because I haven't taken one apart. And it's given me a lot of confidence that that is a really nice engine, well-engineered, and uh, it, it can easily be maintained. So uh, I think it's a, it's a great class if you can go to it. You're really not going to learn how to do some of the maintenance stuff because, he expects you to know how to read a manual, but just seeing and holding the parts and seeing what breaks and what uh, why things broke is a is a real good eye opener. Well, for years, um, Jabru has said that the bottom end of the engine is really, really solid, and I never really knew what they meant by that. But after going through the engine seminar and seeing the bottom ends that fail have these horror stories of abuse that go with them, that that inspired a lot of confidence. Yeah, I'm, I'm now a lot more confident flying behind my Jabiru than I was before I went to this class. Yeah, I, I talked to Ben about getting him on and, and uh, talking about Jabiru. We really need to bump him up and, and get him on. Okay, we'll do that. We'll try. He, he's a hardworking guy, so i got to find the right time. Well, also uh, joining us again, uh, Gary. Gary is builder of Hound Dog, uh, AeroV-powered tail dragger Sonics. Gary's a longtime pilot, former CFI, and uh, just recently... An accomplished multi-time airplane builder. So, uh, Gary, uh, give us your report on the uh, the old project. Well, hi guys, thanks a lot. Yeah, you know, uh, I got my airworthiness certificate uh, about the thirtieth of uh, September, but unfortunately, the, my airport was IFR for a solid week after that. Talk about being bombed. Anyway, this past Saturday, the weather finally broke. Uh, it was cool, some fog banks nearby, but I was able to drag the thing out, fill it up, and crank it up, and take off. Um, so for those of you who are wondering, I actually just finished building a Zenith Cruiser. Uh, I'm running an auto-conversion engine there, a Viking 130, which is a gas-direct engine. 
And, uh, you know, I have to say that after I lined up with a runway and started advancing the power to it, uh, the engine had so much torque to it, I was working really hard with my right leg to maintain the centerline track. Uh, it actually almost reminded me, surprisingly, of the last time I flew a Pitts with an IO540 in it, uh, the same kind of torque and P-factor problems. Anyway, the plane was off the ground before I had the throttle in all the way, as I was taking it fairly easy to go up, you know, since it's all unknown territory. Uh, so after it lifted off and I started establishing a climb angle at about 68 knots or so, I was, I was hitting almost uh, 800 to a thousand feet per minute. Uh, the thing was just screaming up to the sky. I actually overshot the pattern altitude by 500 feet before I even realized it before I turned downwind on the downwind leg. So I got my three circuits in, which was what I planned to do. And after landing, you know, I taxied back to the, to the hangar and, and unfortunately all the parts were still on there. So Overall, a very pleasant and surprising experience with the amount of power they have. It's actually nice to fly something with some what I consider some excess power to it for a change. Good. So, um, how did the control fuel and and how did all that go? Um, I, I, we have some 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 known quantities to that. Uh, typically, these things will start to, or many people will specify that it has a, a left wing heaviness to it, and it has to do with some geometry between. Uh, some bell cranks for the elevator cable, surprisingly, not 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 the aileron setups, uh, but the elevator cables. And so that's something that just has to be tweaked a little bit with some uh, um, control tensions and, and redoing some of the tensions that you have on the cables themselves. Uh, it's a known issue, a uh, minor problem, uh, nothing significant. And I just got to keep tweaking a little bit like we all do with, with all of our planes to get things exactly where we want them. But anyway... Over about seven hour, seven flights over the weekend, I got my five hours of flight time in it and, and submitted out some more applications to get some insurances on the thing now so I can venture a little further from the airport. Well, good. And uh, for anybody that's not tracking, the, the 750 Cruiser uh, high wing, it's a, it's a slightly cleaned up and, uh, and faster version of their 750 Stoll airplane. And, and in my opinion, it's the best of the Zenith bunch. You get... Most of the stall performance with a whole lot better cruise speed. So I think it's a great combination. Really excited to see it uh, flying out and about. Yeah, I mean, as far as calling it, you know, not considering it one of their stall versions, it, it's still stall by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, even much more so than my mall that I've had previously for about nine years. It, uh, again, it uh, really does kind of jump off the ground and wants to climb like a like a banshee. I still haven't done any top end tests or anything else. I pretty much just stayed right over the airport, uh, just doing, you know, basic, uh, analysis, control analysis, trying to calibrate some EVIS uh, parameters and things of that nature. And Gary has done a great job on, uh, the interior. I know the outside is still all raw, but, um, that thing looks, you know, with auto interior and giant cargo space in the back and a panel that to die for. So, yeah, I, I kind of went overboard. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I have the fattest cruiser in the world thus far, uh, but I don't think I'm going to be paying any uh, performance penalties as a result of it. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased so far. So the engine ran without a without a burp, huh? Uh, it pulled remarkably strong. I do have a little bit of coolant issue problems, not with heating, but uh, I think there's some trapped uh, old water-based coolant in there, and these engines use a a waterless system uh, called Evans, which is a non-pressurized system. However, if you don't adequately purge out some of the old water-based stuff, you can get some blow-by feel, which is what I've been experiencing. 
So I've been talking to uh, Jan at Viking about that. I've actually ordered a, a refractometer uh, to test my coolant to see whether or not that is indeed my problem. But again, just kind of minor little irritations. But other than that, like I said, you know, I it, attest to it that I got five hours over the weekend and just, you know, basically put gas in it and, and started up and kept cranking it out. Well, that's excellent. Um, as any builder will attest to, Getting a plane flying is a is a lesson in perseverance. So congratulations that you're here. Uh, there was never any doubt that you're going to be highly successful at it. I'm just I'm really glad to see you're here and I look forward to seeing it. Well, thanks. That makes two for me. I know you've done three, so I'm going to have to work hard to catch up with you. It's not a contest because if it was, uh, uh, I'd be winning. So <laughs> <laughs> very gracious. <laughs> <laughs> all right well um <laughs> moving on <laughs> um so uh back again uh from uh multiple appearances uh on sonic's flight is uh mike caveman Niedenthal. uh you guys all know mike mike's a longtime ga pilot he's uh holds an atp rating and has flown for years as a captain on a major airline Mike flies his Jabiru Sonics with the uh, the rest of the Colorado Sonic Squadron, where he holds the rank of Colonel and attempts to keep John out of trouble. Thanks to be back. Th- nice to be back. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, uh, what have you been doing? Uh, we actually shouldn't that be uh, Colonel Mike <laughs> Neanderthal? Oh, there you go. That's it. I knew I was going to come out eventually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's such a, you're such a nice guy. <laughs> well, I figured I'd just spread the love tonight. Everybody well, we'll, uh, we'll take care of that uh, maybe at Red Claw or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've just been trying to fly a little bit. I know John's had a little bit better weather. We've actually had some – you get past uh, John's airport, John Gillis's airport, and it's getting pretty, it was pretty crazy down here. Uh, a lot of – Crappy weather and overcast, gloomy, foggy, all this past week and a half or so. So, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually uh, just check or uh, readjusting my valves and retorque my heads and oil change tomorrow and get ready for Reclaw. That's my plan. Yeah, and and around here, you know, Mississippi, this is actually getting some pretty decent flying weather. Uh, the temperatures are cooling off. We're getting a little bit of wind. But uh, in, in Colorado, it's it's a little different story. Um, you know, the the cold weather is here. The snow is not far away. And so it's a little different depending on where you're at. Yeah, normally in fall in Colorado, we get some really nice stretches of weather, you know, the Indian summer. But it isn't here. Yeah, Dang, last, we're lucky to get a couple of good great. days. Yeah, and last really, year was really great. Really rainy. Yeah. Rainy, foggy, that kind of thing. Yeah, so. This has been a really weird year all the way around. Um, we had a really wet, wet spring uh, not a lot of flying. I, I think I probably got a handful of glider flights all year. And then we had a pretty decent summer, but a lot of rain, you know, with all the hurricanes and, and just the, the very active Atlantic. It's just been a very strange year. I'm, I'm hoping that the fall things settle down. We get some decent winter weather and then come spring again, we're back on track. Well, I think we're going to get a lot of snow up here in Colorado this year, but you know, I'm not really an official weatherman, so who knows? Well, I hope we get some snow. I got a nice set of skis. I need to keep using. <laughs> yeah. No, only after November first, right? Well, that's true. Yeah, we got a little recollaw trip. Don't so we, we get in out of here. Yeah. Yeah, I turn in all my uh, time off slips to the work, so they know I'm going to be off. Well, good. Well, hey, uh, since we're talking about recollaw, you know, we talked about this before, but recollaw is the last weekend of October. 
But what we haven't talked about is the following weekend, also in Texas, is the 15th annual Great Southern Southern Sonics Gathering. I think I got that right. Uh, this is uh, Mike Singleton and Robert Barber. This is their get-together. They're doing it at the Critters Lodge fly-in November 3rd through the 5th. That looks like a pretty good deal. Uh, I I may I don't know if I can do two two fly-ins back-to-back, but I'm going to give it a shot. And if I can, I'm going to get out there and go go spend the day with them. So if anybody's interested, uh, we'll put the links to the show notes, but uh, just search Critters Lodge Fly-In and you'll find all the details. It's basically uh, about 100 miles north of Houston, so to put it in perspective. Uh, same type of thing, just a, a good sort of down-home fly-in. They got camping, they got accommodations available if you want to drive in or you want to use the bunkhouse. So it looks like it's going to be a pretty good event too. And if you have any questions, reach out to Mike Singleton or Robert Barber. I'm sure they can hook you up. Yeah, it's not that far from uh, Reclaw, right? Uh, yeah, it's in the same general area. Um, Maybe like fifty miles or something. Well, something like that, fifty or hundred miles. It's yeah, it's in the same general area. It's about for for me to fly to Reclaw is about two hours, and it's about three hours to get to uh, Critters. Maybe just oh, a okay. hair less than three. So, so it'd be like uh, two and a half hours for the for the speed cal. That's right. That's yeah, well, you know, I'm not real good at applying the uh, speed cal adjustment factor, but I'll, I'll get better with it. <laughs> hey, I, I have been uh, recently, I have been flying a little faster, just uh, out of curiosity. I've been flying at uh, cruising my engine at 2,900, maybe 3,000. And what I found is that's kind of fun. You know, they see that airspeed kind of creep up there. Instead of 130, 140 that you normally see, it bumps up there 155, 160. So if you want to burn some extra gas, that plane will scoot. In the speed cal, it's probably, uh, you know, at least a couple hundred RPM lower. Oh, yeah, I have to throttle back to get down to that level. Well, yeah, he's got to throttle back to keep him going for redline, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a big balancing act. <laughs> well, we all have a cross to bear. All right, well, let's jump right in. Um, we got our our main topic here. So uh, I guess maybe just to kick off this discussion, um, it's just sort of a, a question out there. Uh, what do we mean by handling qualities? Well, I'll give you kind of what's on my mind, and then uh, we'll jump in and talk some specifics. So when we're talking about handling qualities of the Sonics, we're, we're talking about the question that we get from people who are interested in the Sonics but don't really have any firsthand experience. They've seen, they read, read some reviews, maybe uh, watched some YouTube videos. But what they really want to know is, is this a good plane for me? And am I going to enjoy flying it? What's it going to feel like? Is it going to be similar to the the Bonanza I'm currently flying? Or I only have time in a Cessna and am I going to be able to transition? Am I going to enjoy it? So we're just going to try to put a little bit of definition on what does this thing feel like when you're in the air and you're and you're comparing it to something else maybe you have some experience in. Mike, uh, you've got a lot of experience in all kinds of airplanes. When somebody asks you about handling qualities, what are the first things that kind of come to your mind? Uh, just the harmony of the control, harmony of the flight controls. Uh, you know, comparing it to, you know, it's if you think about it, you can compare it to more like a Bonanza because it's got the responsiveness of that. You know, it's not nothing like a Cessna. It's quite a bit snappier than that. But uh, I just, I just think that the uh, the harmony of the the rudder and the aileron together is makes a nice airplane out of it. So that's usually my best feel. And Gary, uh, you know, you, you've oftentimes uh, gone back and drawn comparisons to your, your mall. We know these are completely different airplanes, control harmony and sort of the feel of the airplane and how responsive it is to what you're trying to accomplish. 
I think that's a big part of, of how we size up airplanes. So when you look at it and you draw some comparisons, how do you explain to people, to put it in perspective, the, the handling characteristics of a Sonics? You know, I, I, I'm sure I haven't done as much as, as, as Captain Mike there. I think I've only done about 20 different aircraft <laughs> or something in that, in that range. Uh, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed the Sonics over all the production aircraft that I've flown. Um, I, I thought the, the control responses were just phenomenal. What I particularly liked was the control pressures that required, which means basically there is no pressure re- required to fly the Sonics. It's more of a, a just thinking about what you want to do, and it just kind of does it. Um, you know, so from that aspect, you know, they talk about the various difference between maneuverability in an aircraft versus controllability of an aircraft. Uh, they're not necessarily the same thing, as you know, basically an aircraft is very maneuverable. Um, something like some of our more sophisticated fighters these days, uh, they'll, they'll turn on a dime, so to speak, but it takes a lot of software and computers to help the pilot actually fly the thing. So highly maneuverable, but not really uh, all that controllable. Um, so I, I found the science to be very maneuverable, uh, but very neutral in, in static and dynamic uh, controllability. In other words, it will have a tendency if you if you if you input the controls to do something, it's going to maintain that, if not increase that. Uh, versus something like a Cessna, you basically when you roll it, you let go of it, it wants to roll back towards neutral. Same thing with the pitch. In my particular Sonics, I found that my, my CG was so neutral that if it pitched up, it kept on pitching. If it pitched down, it kept on pitching. Same thing with roll as well. So from that aspect, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed flying. I mean, you could yank and bake the heck out of it all day long and never work up a sweat. You never came back with your hands or arms in cramps, you know, trying to muscle around, do what you wanted for sure. Uh, but it wasn't a plane that you flew cross-country hands-off for long periods of time, basically seconds at a time. And most time when I found out I was looking at something like a chart or an EPIS or something like that, I'd look back up again. And that could easily be off quite a bit because it took no pressure uh, on the controls to elicit, elicit a change. So you really had to pay attention to it. But again, I found that one of the endearing qualities of a Sonics. Okay, and, and John, when somebody asks you about handling qualities, what, what are kind of the first things that come to your mind when you try to explain this to them? Well, I kind of, uh, I try to explain it like, um, you know, it's, I, like Gary says, it's very responsive. It's not twitchy. Um, it's not hard to fly, but it will hold whatever attitude that you last left it at. So it won't autocorrect and, and, you know, like a Cessna and fall back into a stable level flight. Um, and like Gary, you get distracted, you go to change something in your refis or look for that pen that just fell off the panel. You're going to go all over the sky because it's just going to continue to follow whatever way you bumped it. So it's, it's not a hands-off plane. It, it has to be hand flown. I think all the time. And uh, that's one reason I'm thinking about getting an autopilot so that I can, you know, take a little time off and not have to fly the plane when I'm doing cross countries. Okay. Well, I just kind of broke this down into a few different areas. So I'm going to run down my list and let's let's just kind of pull these threads one by one. So, um, the, and we've touched on a lot of these already, but I'm going to, I want to dig in a little more. So the, the first thing that comes to mind is stick forces. And Gary, you talked about this. The, the force on the control stick is very light 
And, and so it's not so much displacing the stick right and left. It's more just applying a little pressure to the stick to kind of think, go right, and the plane kind of goes right. So, so elaborate on the stick force in flight. What do you normally feel? What does that feel like? Well, you know, when I built my Sonics, I actually put a sub panel underneath my panel. And so I had to shorten up the stick uh, just, just for clearance issues. That being said, when I typically fly the aircraft, <clears throat> almost all the time, if I'm just doing normal maneuvers, my hand is in my lap and I'm just using a couple of fingers at the very base of the stick. So even though I whacked off several inches at the top of it for normal day-to-day -day flying, my hand's way down at the bottom of the stick because that way I can, I can get the input that I need without over-controlling and, and having to worry about really yanking and banking. So that kind of gives you an idea, too, how minimal the forces are required to that. You don't need the top of the stick. I needed the bottom of the stick. When I actually did aerobatics in it, you know, if I really wanted to yank the bank and, you know, do the rolls and the, and the spins and the loops and all everything that goes along with it, yeah, I'm at back at the top of the stick because I want, you know, full control throw instantaneously, and it does take a little bit more pressure when you're in, in the G-loading aspect. But for flying it, you really want to just relax your arm, let it rest. I, and I fly center stick, basically, by the way. I had dual sticks. I took those out, put a center stick. So I just straddled it right in the middle of the cockpit and put my feet on the outside rudder pedals. So I had a, a above a 1X out of it. So, But again, uh, I grip it at the base of the stick and, and just light fingertip pressure still even at that point to give you a clue. And both Mike and I put those uh, Taurus... Uh, fighter pilot sticks in which required us to cut down the stick quite a bit and so we too difference. we fly it yeah and, and michael even talk about this but i think having having the shorter stick allows us to fly with a lot smoother uh transitions but i do lose a little bit when you're doing aerobatics because i don't have all that leverage and uh sometimes when you know i have the uh the aerobatic ailerons and to do a a full um, aileron roll at, at full throw. I almost have to grab it with both hands to do it, to get the stick to go all the way over. I just think you need an exercise program, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> See, I just lean. I'm so big, I just lean. And I, I have... Because <laughs> I, I fly it just like Gary. I fly it in middle center stick. But uh, it's amazing when John talked me into getting the new shortening that stick up. It's just I'm, I was over controlling it quite a bit before. Yeah, I think it really does help uh, shorten the stick and still grab it at the base most of the time. Uh, you know, especially when you're probably first starting. You know, don't don't get the white knuckle syndrome grabbing the top of that stick with a death grip when you're first trying to do your your takeoff and landings and, and learning to control things. You'll, you'll over control it for sure. That's the first thing I tell people when they fly is is uh, rest your hand on your leg and just hold it with two fingers. And uh, if they if I see their hand closed all the way around it, I'll like pry their fingers off and tell them, "Hey, rest your hand, don't hold the stick, and just pressure it with two fingers." And suddenly they're flying smooth right out because they're thinking pressure, not displacement. And the the plane does give it a nice feedback. So even at the shorter stick and the shorter throws and the the light touch you'll feel the feedback in the flight controls. So, you know, you throw in full flaps, it's going to give you a little down pitch and you're going to have to be pulling back, but it's nothing that you couldn't override yourself. It's not like a Cessna 175 where you're having to pull that thing into your chest with all your might just to keep it straight and level. 
There's another aspect to the Sonics controls, and that is they tend to firm up with increasing airspeed. So when you're low and you're in the pattern, you know, slow flight, the controls are, are very responsive, but but the forces are lighter. And then as you get faster and faster, and you really notice this coming into aerobatics, the, the roll axis and the pitch will start to stiffen up a little bit and give you pretty good feedback based on how fast you're going. Yeah, I know it's the same thing. So you need to be really kind of careful, I think, in, in the pattern, especially when you're going from that uh, downwind, start hitting your base and final, to really start monitoring your, your not only your angle of, a, angle of a bank, but start watching those air speeds and the balls and make sure everything's centered because uh, you don't get quite as much pressure feedback at those slower speeds as you do at higher speeds. Okay, well, you mentioned uh, centering the ball, and so let's talk about rudder use. Uh, the Sonics is, is unique in all the airplanes I've flown in that it takes the absolute least amount of rudder at any time than anything I've ever flown. So let's talk about that a little bit. All right, I'll jump in with this, and I'll give you another comparison. And actually, between the previous plane that I have and my current one, uh, we, we mentioned the Mall, and we also mentioned the Cruiser now. Uh, when I was flying the Mall, one of the weirdest things I first noticed, too, is the airplane was rudder-dominant. I would actually initiate turns with my rudder in the mall and then use my ailerons to center the ball, as wacky as that sound, but it worked really, really well. I'm actually starting to notice a little bit of the same thing, I think, in my cruiser as well. Uh, a tremendous amount of rudder inputs available to this thing, and, and it kind of helps to start with that and then use the ailerons to follow. Not so much with the Sonics at all, you're right. I mean, if you want to bank left or right, you start adding just a little bit of pressure into the ailerons, and most of the time, the rudder is going to fall along really pretty close. I mean, you might get a little bit of a, a slip in the ball one way or the other, uh, but it's not way outside the cage. It's like maybe about a half ball outside the cage is what I typically notice unless I'm really doing some really wild bank angles. So, John, when you're flying with people and they get their first taste of, of handling the controls, do you find that they tend to, to ignore the rudder or do they massively overcorrect the rudder? Oh, no, they ignore it. Um, you know, I'll see the ball, especially on a climb out, you know, sliding over to the, to the right and, uh, we'll give it a little touch to keep it centered. Um, but you know, normally, I mean, the thing is it just, it flies like an arrow and, uh, you don't need to do a rudder. It's really, you can get some bad habits in the Sonics because you don't need to do a rudder. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, it, it's so well behaved. That um, if you come from like a Cessna background where you don't you don't really use the rudder a whole lot and you're maybe a little bit sloppy, you're going to fit right in and you're going to reinforce the the lack of rudder discipline in a Sonic because it just doesn't need it. It's so well behaved. On the other hand, if you come from an ultralight background where all those ultralights are incredibly rudder dominant, that's what I've seen. All my ultralight buddies, they get in and they just over control the rudder because that's what they're used to. And they're making life incredibly difficult on themselves because they're just sending it off in crazy directions. Well, I'm, I'm in the midst of getting my glider rating. And, uh, you know, I'm having, obviously, to, to really learn the proper use of the rudder. And that's translating back into my sonics, too. But, you know, I always kind of, you know, flying a tailwheel, you kind of always keep a little, uh, you feel like you're a bit of a rudder head. Um, but, yeah, definitely... <laughs> Not as much as you needed for a glider. I was I was always I'm always flying something heavier, of course, and uh, so every, the first time I started flying this thing, I was overcorrecting the rudder, you know, 
even the even the uh, elevator a little bit initially, but uh, I kind of tamp dampened that down. But now I've got 140 or 50 hours on mine. I finally, you know, where I can bring the tail up and stay in the center of the runway and that kind of thing. But it's it's extremely, to me, it's very uh, minute input. Very small it does, it, right. It does teach you a lot of finesse. You can't horse it around like you would in an ultralight. It requires just the right amount, and you get rewarded with a beautiful takeoff and landing. Um, I, I really enjoy that feel of it. Yeah, it's really it's it's very easy, easy to finesse, easy to uh, you know, as far like this aircraft with the with the tailwheel, the direct drive tailwheel. I mean, you know, I only had about thirty hours of total tailwheel time, and even I can fly this one. Well, let's talk about the direct drive. How does that feel different than uh, a classic tailwheel that's on uh, on springs to the rudder? Well, I mean, basically, the, the to me, it it uh, the springs on the rudder. Gary could probably back me up, but it's it's uh, the one thing you do miss is you can't spin it around on the ground, kind of like John can do now. Uh, but it's it's a it's a different. It's like a tension feeling. It's not really like you have you really have to work the rudders to keep the tail in line with the airplane. And uh, this airplane, once you're on the ground, I mean, other than your small inputs, it's like it reminds me of a reverse uh, Cherokee, basically. You know, like a Piper Cherokee, a Piper yeah, Cherokee it, with a direct drive nose wheel. I think it makes us sloppy uh, tailwheel pilots. Uh, you, you're probably drive. yes, I agree. But you know, as I've, far I've, as a novice, if a novice coming to the airplane, I think it helps them. I just did a check or my annual and checkout in a. Uh, in an extreme decathlon and uh you know i have over 200 hours in my sonics tailwheel and it was uh it was definitely more more of a challenge because i didn't have that direct drive in the decathlon well and the thing you notice is that in a classic tailwheel airplane you know a champ or something like that um you step on the rudder and and there's that half a second or so of lag where your brain is thinking what's it gonna do and you're waiting for it to happen and if you don't have enough experience to know you put a little in and take a little out, you'll overcorrect and you'll shoot off the, uh, you know, way, way too much input. The Sonics, you get immediate response. You can do a very fine adjustment and, and you get immediate response. Then you can kind of tailor the amount of movement you have. You don't have to learn how to anticipate and lead it because of those springs kind of throwing you off balance. Yeah, I think those who are transitioning from traditional tricycle gear down to the Sonics direct drive tailwheel gear really will not have a great deal of difficulty you know i'm not sure it's going to go the same way around if someone were to their first aircraft have a sonics uh, conventional or tail dragger aircraft and then want to step into something that's that's truly a a tail dragger with free swiveling with a lot of torque on the engine uh, i think they'd have some nasty surprises right off the bat yeah i say that the sonics makes you look like a better pilot Uh, i say that like a compliment but it really does it makes you look good because it's so well behaved and it's so predictable all right well we talked about responses i think we'll just uh we'll move on from that uh let's talk about stability and and gary you talked about this about the neutral stability in flight so let's let's elaborate on when we say neutral stability in flight what exactly are we talking about well, when we talk about the traditional certified aircraft, I think they're designed to be, you know, basically to positively dampen out uh, unwanted inputs. Let's say, for example, with some of the Cessnas or whatever, let's say you, you're flying along in cruise and you, you pitch up to 10 or 15 degrees to initiate a climb and you decide to take your hands off of while you get a soda or a snack or something like this. 
basically what will happen in that aircraft, assuming there's no turbulence, is the airplane aircraft will go through a series of Hoosier oscillations. In other words, you, you've affected it a positive pitch to it, so it will climb. The speed will bleed down a little bit. The nose will start to drop. The speed will gain up again. The nose will start to rise a little bit, and it goes through that series of oscillations. But in theory, it's designed that if you leave it alone long enough, it'll basically get back to straight and level. It's kind of an oversimplification, but that's the gist of it. Uh, so that's positive dynamic stability. When we talk about neutral stability, we talk about when you input a control input, let's say we go back to that positive pitch again. We say we pitch up 10 or 15 degrees in the Sonex. In, in my case, with my, the way my airplane was designed, it would basically keep on pitching up to it when it ran out of airspeed, and then you'd have a significant drop, and you would notice it. Uh, and when it dropped, it would go back down, and it would just continue to go down <laughs> and continue to build speed. You wouldn't get that point where you started building speed and getting a real positive rate of climb again unless you grab the stick and start bringing it back to, to level. So there again, I mean, as far as, as maneuverability, that's great, but as far as controllability, it's not a hands-off aircraft. That makes sense. Yeah, so in a sense, um, most GA airplanes are designed to seek that level-trimmed airspeed, and they're going to want to get there pretty quick if you do nothing. The Sonics is not really that, that case. Um, if it gets disturbed, if you're not paying attention and you have a little input that you're you're not aware of, it'll just happily keep doing what you asked it to, and it won't really seek to strongly return to that straight and level trim flight. Sure. And if I remember back in about 2010, 2011, when I was getting my plane built and certified, I actually went with something called the Nicosil cylinders, which were aluminum and a Nicosil coated on the inside. It was supposed to save you about 10 pounds of weight on the engine. Um, my, my thought is John Monette was thinking more along the turbo later on when he knew he was going to have to add some more weight into the front, so he wanted to try to balance things off. So that was a nice little upgrade. Well, it wasn't so nice of an upgrade after all for a couple of issues. We know we had some deformation of those cylinders because they were just too thin, and we basically had to pull them off. So when I pulled those Nicosil cylinders off and went back with the heavier steel cylinders, I added about that 10 pounds of weight again forward of the CG, well, I got to tell you, that made the aircraft almost an entirely different critter. Uh, it actually improved my flight characteristics quite a bit. It was still relatively neutral, uh, but more positively neutral than negatively neutral, if that kind of makes any sense to you. Uh, it really did improve the flight characteristics by having a little bit more positive CG in that thing. Yeah, and that's a good point because um, you will notice a, a, a very different handling characteristic when when you're at a, a forward CG, when it's just you and you got a full tank of gas, uh, you'll get a, a real nice sort of easy fly-in, very stable. And then when you load up uh, two people and a bunch of camping gear going to Oshkosh and you're flying in <laughs> on your approach and you got three gallons left in the tank and you're at that aft CG, you'll notice quite a different feel. The elevator gets very sensitive and uh, you really got to control your pitch inputs because that aft CG affects the, the felt stability through the control stick. Yeah, Are you just trying to explain your uh, Tigger bounce down uh, <laughs> the Oshkosh? Well, it, if you follow this line of reasoning, you'll conclude that it totally wasn't my fault. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy it, Jeff. It wasn't even. Yeah, it wasn't even the ass fault. It was the airplane fault, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll let yeah, Mike yeah. try to explain his Tigger bounce after yeah. uh, following <laughs> that. 
you can get pretty nervous when that, that CG really starts getting aft. Uh, you do notice it, and it starts to, you, your ears should be perking up at that point that you need to be careful. So again, I don't want to leave anybody with the wrong impression. Uh, the plane is not uncontrollable. Uh, Sonics publishes a CG range that is entirely adequate. I've tested it at the full range. Um, I can tell you absolutely 100% Sonics' figures are accurate. But that doesn't mean that you will not notice a difference in feel between a forward CG and an aft CG. And it's something that you should go get comfortable with during your flight testing. Oh, absolutely. I believe all the numbers they published were, were right on, were spot on. So I, I commend them on that. All right. Uh, let's talk about um, stability in turbulence. And this is something that almost seems like a contradiction. But I find that the plane handles turbulence extremely well. You'd think that a, a bump or a wing kind of being lifted by a little bump or something like that would send you all over the sky. And, and I just don't find that to be the case. You hit turbulent air, the entire airplane displaces up or down or does whatever it's going to do, but it just seems to ride right on through it. Um, and if you just sort of keep a light grip and just correct the nose from, from wondering too much, you'll blast right through turbulence without any problem. And I find it very, very easy to handle. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I, I don't know how to scientifically explain it based on what we were talking about before, but I did notice the same thing. I mean, you can get some real headbangers against the canopy, and you just, you just keep on trucking. It's like you just hit the big pothole, but so what? You don't really have to do much about it except say, ow, and go on. <laughs> yeah, you know, standard uh, clear air turbulence is that way, but wake turbulence, um, I, I fly into a fairly um, – busy airport with a lot of corporate jets and if you get into the wake turbulence it can be a handful to try to to you know keep that thing on its feet as you're coming in through that swirly air just just like Oshkosh. <laughs> well i think that's true with like every that. aircraft if you hit a real true yeah. vortex that's, that's problematic for almost every aircraft it could be just the weight of the airplane you know just not having enough mass to i mean we, we're kind of a, a a ping pong ball in a washing machine when that happens. Yeah, light gross weight and also short wingspan. And so it's got a high roll rate, which is great right. when you're yanking and banking, but it also encourages the plane to react quickly. Well, you even feel it off of uh, each other. You know what I mean? When we're like John and I are flying, he'll go, oh, there you are. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll get a little, or I'll go behind him and get the same thing, you know? So it's uh, yeah, we, now that John, now that John's boxing the wake, he understands that. You know, yeah. <laughs> practicing that, right? Even doing some aerobatics, I mean, it was pretty easy on a nice day. If you're doing some some nice loops and you do a pretty good loop, and end up back at the original starting out. Right back in your starf. Yeah. You, you could hit that thud all of a sudden, and that was your own vortex. So it gets to be pretty noticeable. But again, it's just a, a bang, and, and off you go. Yeah, I mean, it's not uncontrollable. It's just a little bit no. of a, whoa, I got to deal with this right now. Yeah, you just fly right out of it pretty much, you know, so. Yeah, well, that's my uh, advice. Um, just a light grip, correct for the pitch deviation, and just let the plane fly through it. Let it displace. Don't try and fight it, and you'll have a much easier ride. And that's not unique to the Sonics. That's that's kind of the, the thing you want to do in a lot of airplanes, but you really notice it in the Sonics. The Sonics is so maneuverable that if you hit a bump and you try to immediately correct, you'll kill yourself the opposite direction because you'll way overcorrect for that bump. All right, let's talk about the difference in control responsiveness. And what I'm really thinking here is acro ailerons versus the standard ailerons. So, uh, John, you've flown both. So summarize the difference in feel between the big aileron and the small aileron. Well, the, the, both planes 
you know, in, in straight and level and, and, you know, normal gentleman flight, um, they fly exactly the same with about the same amount of stick pressure. Uh, where you get the different stick pressures is when you go to the extremes of uh, doing a, like an aileron roll, uh, you know, flying mics and going through the aerobatic maneuvers <clears> with his. Um, I, it wasn't too hard to, to do a full aileron deflection and just, you know, ride it through. Of course, we weren't, I wasn't, you know, you don't have the roll rate that you have with the uh, aerobatic. But with the aerobatic, it is, with the short stick, it's um, it's about what my little skinny little uh, pigeon arms can handle. And I have to sometimes, <laughs> I'll, I'll just instinctively grab it with the other hand to pull it over to get it to roll all the way around. This is a moment, guys. Honesty at last. <laughs> <laughs> Confession is good for the soul, John. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, obviously pitch, no difference. Uh, and like I say, in, in normal straight and level flight, um, there, there's absolutely no difference in the twitchiness or the, the, the sensitivity. I guess um, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't Well, I don't know about you, Jeff. You have the ailerons, don't you? have the aerobatic I, I have the big ailerons. Yeah. I mean, when I was flying with you and I've flown with John's, uh, I did notice the sensitivity just even in normal flight. And then, uh, but, and I really noticed that how much flat, less flap you had, you know, coming in, uh, for a landing, basically. It seemed a little bit, it, it affects the pitch a little bit, I think. Well, I, I uh, yeah, you, you do make a good point, Mike. When you put those big barn doors down on yours, um, yeah, it did. does take a bit of trim and a little bit yeah. of muscle to, to, and it feels like you're just, wow, I'm just, Put the parachute out, and I'm going to come down now. That's right. The tail, you know, having flown Johns and and uh, you know, you talk about if you're talking about handling or the, the qualities of, of that kind of thing, the uh, the tail itself means nothing. I mean, that's you can't even tell the difference. Oh, with for the way X and the for some yeah for somebody that's worried about you know yeah. what, which way to go straight tail split tail so to speak. I, I get the question a lot, and I tell everybody they fly exactly the same with the same amount of rudder authority. I think I just, I'm just cooler. Yeah, you are. Which is, you know, that compensates for my pigeon arms. <laughs> well, talking about the flaps, uh, I, I think that the the added pressure to get those big flaps all the way into the into the full uh, the full flaps. I think that's the main reason why people add that intermediate notch and they tend to use that a whole lot is because half flaps of the big flap is about as equivalent, you know, is about as effective as full flap and the small flap. And so right. the nice thing is you've got that one more notch with the big flap. And if you need to come down quick, that thing will really bring you down quick. Well, those of us with pigeon arms, we just put that electric servo we in. Just have electric, we just have down. electric flaps. That's, that's it. More honesty. I, I applaud you tonight, John. <laughs> stepping up. About time. But anyway, you know, and sir, I, you know, I did the intermediate notch in my flaps, too, when I did my Sonics. And I had the big big barn doors. I had the original ailerons that came out with the, the acro version just after I got my kit. And I just selected to go ahead and build with what I had. Uh, but, you know, let's talk about flaps a little bit more. You know, I think you're right. I think probably for both of us, big or small flaps, the first 10 degrees notch, uh, you get a, a noticeable down pitch and improves your sight visibility when you're in the pattern coming in for a landing is what I found. Uh, but I do have to say, though, by the time I did that last notch, you know, I was over the fence and getting really pretty slow. And the only real purpose most time for that last notch of flaps 
was to really decrease any chance for floating. Um, but not that I had a lot of problem with that anyway, as you know, John, I come in really pretty slow and I make, <laughs> like to make the first turn off at the entrance to the runway if I can. It's about 35 built a stall aircraft because you had one. Yeah. 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 Isn't it about 35 miles an hour you come in, Gary? Is that- uh, you know, if, if it's not a windy day, pretty, yeah. If it's a windy day, I'll make my like, like 37. You know, Gary usually <laughs> lands about 15 feet before he touches down. Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I get tired of those long, long taxis. You know, I got things to do, places to go, and people to see. <laughs> so, yeah, slow them down. I mean, there, if, you, if you're having a lot of pull to put those flaps down on the Sonics, I really believe you're flying this thing way, way too fast. You know, the first 10 degrees you can put down at 100 miles an hour, and it's no real problem. But you start putting that intermediate or that third notch of flaps, if you're really having to pull on it, that's that's a real good clue that your speeds are way too high on your approach for whatever you're well, trying to do. Yeah, 10 miles an hour makes a huge difference when you're trying to pull it from uh, 10 to 20 degrees of flaps. Yeah, and 10 miles oh, yeah. an hour makes a huge difference in the amount of runway that you're going to be required to use as well. Yeah, I've noticed the same thing, Gary. Um, you can easily pull uh, under 100, you can pull the first 10. It's not a problem. But if you try to go to, to more flap, if you are over about 80 miles an hour, it's a significant pull. If you get under 80, it gets a whole lot easier. And at under 70, and it's a piece of cake. And so it's really speed sensitive. You know, you're doing all that with your, with your arm muscles. And if you're finding it difficult, you're right. Just slow down and, and life will be so much easier. And what I find, uh, having flown both the, the large and small ailerons, the uh, the small aileron has a, a really balanced feel. If you're just flying around and maybe some gentle maneuvering, and uh, I say gentle, I mean, I mean like non-aerobatic maneuvering, just, just out flying, has a great feel to it. The pressures are real light and responsive, but what you notice is that when you really want to you know, crank it over and, and do an aileron roll or something like that, that you just don't have the, the, the rapid roll rate that you do with the bigger ones. By contrast, the bigger aerons, you have a little bit heavier feel all the time. You, you know, you're, you're having to muscle it just a little bit more. And that's not a problem, but you notice it just a hair more, in, in, even in everyday flight. But when you want to really crank and maneuver that, you just have the sheer control power that the big aileron gives you. It does have a higher force that's required, but you got more muscle there to, to crank it around. And you get that 20, 30, maybe well, maybe 30 degrees more roll rate, 30 degrees per second more roll rate with that big ale run. So it's just about what you want to do. If you want to go out and fly aerobatics routinely and you want to enjoy the the faster roll rates, build the big ale runs. If you don't want to do that all the time and you just want to enjoy just superb handling, you might be happier with the small ale run because it just feels so great. All right, let's talk about uh, speeds. Now, we, we've covered a lot of this in other podcasts, but I want to just kind of run down the list here. Um, so uh, what I'm what I'm really thinking is starting from like the takeoff run up through climb cruise pattern. Let's just kind of briefly um, lay out some speeds that that you would expect to see in a Sonics. So John, uh, what do you when when you're taking off from the time you you line up on the numbers and you advance it? About how long does it take to get to rotation speed, and what do you tend to rotate at? I uh I fly pretty much landings and takeoffs with my lift reserve indicator and I'm, I'm not really paying much attention to my speeds. Um, so, you know, I have, you know, one of those uh, differential pressure gauges 
that's calibrated for uh, stall on my aircraft and when I hit VY and VX. And so I'm looking at roughly around 50 um, when I'll, I'll, I'll throw the throttle forward, accelerate to about 50, get the tail up. And then at about 60, 65, I'll start letting it get a little light on the feet and then just let it pull off the, uh, the runway. Um, then I'm, I try to keep it in ground effect because we, we fly out of high density altitude airports. I want to get my speed up because I want to have options if I have a problem at the end of the runway. And so I'll get it up to about 100 miles an hour by the end of the runway and maybe climbing out at, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet. And then I'll just hit VY or VY after that. And I'll be, you know, at the end of the, the, um, the takeoff leg, I'll be at almost at pattern altitude, you know, so at five, 600 feet at about a hundred miles an hour. All right, Mike, uh, what do you, what's your takeoff technique? When I, when I go out, I'm just, I'm very similar to John. I mean, I just, you know, it's my, uh, I go for some reason, this airplane is so much easier to go by. I go by feel. I really do. I mean, I could, when I put the power in, I could tell it just feels right to, to try to bring the tail up. You know what I mean? Uh, and then when I get, a, I just, I'm glancing occasionally at the airspeed and it's usually in this, the 60 ish range. And, and I'll just, I'll just give a little stick, a little back pressure and it just comes right off. And then what I do is, I just accelerate right up to uh, probably 95 or 100, and I just keep it there. I just I'm always a cruise climber because I try to keep the temperatures down, and and uh, sometimes my one of my EGTs goes goes a little hot, so I have to pull the power back just to you know, skosh. But um, that's pretty much what I do, and and I don't even have a lift drag indicator like John does. But I just kind of you know you, it's a really easy airplane to get a good sight picture with, I think. And you, and it taught, like, yeah, like I say, you get good feedback. You know, you talked about the other qualities. I get a good feedback on takeoff. I mean, I know right what it's doing. It just, without even, as a matter of fact, when John, not this past year, but the year prior, uh, John and I were on a fuel stop and, and my MGL overheated. It would not come up. And it's about 95 degrees outside. And, and uh, John says, What do you want to do? And I go, Let's go. I go, I, we're, I, I'm going to be here till tomorrow morning if we don't leave. So, I just let him go first, and I just mirrored him, did the sight picture, and, and I flew up you know, to about 8,000 feet, and it, everything popped back on, and everything was normal. I mean, I was right where I was, thought I was going to be, speed-wise and so forth. Yeah, people have asked me, um, hey, you've only got one glass panel instrument. If that thing goes out, you lose everything. Pretty much. And yeah, that's true. But the airplane is so easy to fly based on feel that you can take off, land, fly the pattern. You could do all that just based on feel. And, and it, it's very predictable. And, and, and it wouldn't be my first choice, but it would no. not, it would not freak me out if I had to fly it with no instruments whatsoever. Easily done. Yep. Not, not a problem. I mean, it's, it's, I can say I, I just, I'm a glancer. I just kind of glance, you know, like you get a scan going and I'm just, you know, keeping it straight down the runway, bring the tail up. It just, it, it almost talks to you. It just lets you know that's the correct time to do that, you know. So it's very, very intuitive, I think. In my airplane, um, I bring the power up nice and slow because the, the Jabiru does have quite a bit of torque. And if you jam it in quick, it'll spin you off to the weeds. So 
I bring the power up, you know, over a couple of seconds, let the airspeed start to, to register. And about the time I get full power in, I'm showing 45, 50, and it's time to kind of bring the tail up a little bit and then just let it kind of fly off at 55, maybe 60. And you're right, just kind of ease it off the ground and it will immediately start to accelerate to that climb out speed. And uh, it, it's very simple if you don't try to rush it and just let it fly off when it's ready. You know, when I'm feeling a little spunky, I'll, uh, I'll get it into that point where, you know, we're just lifting off and then push the stick down and keep it at the three foot ground effect level right off the runway. And you can get to about 120 miles an hour at the end of the runway and then just do this incredible zoom climb at the end. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I do about that a 2G pullout. I kind of mirror everything you guys are saying too. You know, most of the tail draggers I did too. We, we never really, we never really, I never, was never taught and never, never really did it either as a without really paying attention to, to airspeed on takeoff. It, it's on, done by sight and feel. I usually try to set my aircraft up and set my trim uh, so that when it gets ready to fly, the tail will actually start to come up by itself. I don't have to force it. And in, many times that's a good clue is, is when the tail rises, then the tail dragger is ready to fly. In other words, then you can affect a positive pull up and, and get it out, get the wheels off the ground. So it's it's all pretty intuitive. You know, when the tail flies, the plane will fly pretty much. You got to pay attention more to speeds coming in for landing for sure. But it can't be done without it. I mean, I've had you know, instrument problems in the past too, and the sonnet's got very characteristic stall warnings as well. So as long as you're not really sleeping. You can certainly fly the aircraft without any airspeed indicator at all, although we, we none of us would really recommend that as a first option. Okay, so let's just uh, very briefly, Gary, just t- just walk us through a uh, typical kind of downwind base and final. Talk about speeds and just I, we, we've again, we've covered this in other areas, but let's just uh, let's just wrap this up with a typical pattern to a flare. Tell us how no, you do it. I just have to I have to interject though. You said a typical. This is Gary. So everything's going to be a little bit slower. Well, and I, I do do things differently. Yes, I have to be different. So first of all, I fly the AeroV powered Sonics versus the Jabru's power and the turbos that you guys have got. So that's already a little bit different. So my speeds are a little bit different there too. Um, you know, as far as patterns, you know, I, I naturally fell into using a oval pattern when I come into and use airports instead of the traditional rectangular pattern that we were all taught and flew for so many years. And we discussed this previously, you know, AOPA and one of the, I think it's North Dakota University, we're investigating using a, basically a constant turn pattern from upwind to downwind, then from downwind to final. And I actually use that and I find it gives me a really great sight picture too. Uh, it keeps me close into the airport. It gives me a lot of uh, situational awareness with the airport environment uh, keeps me away from a lot of other traffic too. The people that like to fly a little bit, you know, farther out. So overall, I like the racetrack pattern much better. Well, let's just say I'm in a pattern. I'm downwind. I'm starting to approach the numbers or beam the numbers there. You know, I'll typically be about 75 miles per hour, maybe at that point. I've already slowed down quite a bit. Um, I'll frequently throw in my first notch of flaps about 10 degrees or so. Uh, again, that first notch isn't going to do anything for us as far as increasing our uh, our vertical descent rate, but it certainly does improve the sight picture. It pitches your nose down a little bit, and so it gives you a better sight picture too. And, you know, it takes no pressure for that first notch, as we've already said. By the time I start turning my base, uh, you know, I'm probably down into about 70 or so. Um, I may wait 
quite a while in my bass leg before I'll add an intermediate or a second notch of flaps um, and see how things are going. I'll continue my turn uh, and just make a constant turn from, from downwind to, to final. And I'll be hitting about 60 or so when I'm about a quarter, well, I want to say a quarter, more like an eighth of a mile, if that, from the runway threshold. Uh, as I really start to get a good sight picture on the runway threshold and you start to see the lights that they approach in and everything along those lines, I'm probably down to about 60 or so. You know, at that point, as I, as I start to really get into the runway environment, if I really want to, I, I'll throw in that final notch of flaps and then I'll get my speeds down to about 55 or so. Uh, so when I actually touch down, I'm, I'm probably really close to 50 or so, uh, maybe even a little bit less than that. Uh, but it really does cut down on the tire screeching as well as the runway that you're going to eat up. Uh, but it depends on your environment, what the winds are doing, and, and, and your comfort level as well. But I think we can fly these things safely at much slower airspeeds. I mean, the tires I had on mine before I replaced them this, this last year, um, I had, you know, total hours of my plane was about 660, and I probably had about, you know, 750, 800 landings on the thing. And I probably got a, could have got another three or 400 landings out of them as well. I went ahead and replaced them and put the Tundra tire version, basically the five by fives on it. And that changed my takeoff pattern basically quite a bit. It would, at, at that point, it would actually do a three point takeoff because the angle of attack was so much higher. It was noticeable. Um, you could certainly bring the tail if you wanted to, but it would do an honest three point takeoff with those five by five tires. Okay, and Mike, uh, tell us your speeds, so, uh, downwind, base, final, flare, all that. Let's see, about 250 knots. No, uh, <laughs> before I start putting flaps out. No, I actually, uh, I'm, I'm probably similar to Gary. I mean, I just came in the pattern normally, and then whatever, we're start slowing down. And before I get to the uh, beam, the numbers, I'm I'm uh, less than 100, cause, so I could put the, uh, you know, like uh, the first uh, air notch your flaps out, so to speak. I've actually adopted the B model tape on the uh, left side of the airplanes because since I have electric flaps, and so I just look down there and gauge it to about 10 degrees, you know, and uh, put it down. And then I probably I'm probably turning base. I'm a little faster than Gary, but I usually I do all my adjusting on final. So I'm, I turn front base about 80, 75, something like that. And then when I turn final. I'm probably 70, and then I then I decide whether I want to put all the rest of the flaps in or not, depending on the winds. And coming across the end, I'm actually getting, I'm actually getting down, especially when I'm learning how to fly in and out of John's airport. You know, I'm probably in the mid 60s, probably 65, crossing the end. So I'm, my ground roll is, it's been greatly reduced because uh, when I was first flying, I was flying way too fast. So. Um, I've uh, over the over the hours I've I've had it I've and it's it it's sixty sixty you know like sixty five maybe sixty touching down like probably like in the mid fifties you know for our altitude that's that's probably about right right on par I would think but uh, it's not as good as Gary but it's pretty close it's very manageable at those speeds not a problem but you do uh, I also a have a bit slower speed though don't you I do it, fe- it really feels good yeah it does. <laughs> I, would, I just think of you when I'm thinking getting slower. I'm like, this is how Gary is. Get, get old right. and slow, yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, good takeaway point. Um, we will naturally tend to fly the pattern a little faster than we really probably should. And getting comfortable will allow you to get a little slower. And you'll you'll realize benefits all the way around. 
Well, you remember the FAA really advocates 1.3 VSO, right? Correct. Correct. So what's VSO yes. in a Sonics? Oh, about wow. 45, 40, 44. 48. Yeah, there okay. you go. For, yeah. So 1.3 times 44 <clears throat> is what? Barely 50. <laughs> right. But, but most, most so people see, I'm still, that comfortable. I'm still too yeah. fast. <laughs> see, but I'm, yeah. I'm carrying, I'm carrying a little more weight. You know, I have to, you have to, your speeds have to be, you know, an extra mile, a couple miles an hour, you know, cause I got an cool. extra 50 pounds more than everybody else has got. Okay. So <laughs> I lost about 16 pounds this last month. I can probably get down to the thirties now, maybe. Oh, wow. You're going to be really low. That's right. <laughs> well, what I tell people just in really broad terms, and this is a, this is very conservative. Um, I try to fly downwind uh, at a hundred or less so I can get the flaps on, uh, beam the numbers, pull the power back, put the flaps on first notch of flaps. I want to be 90 or lower from a beam the numbers on downwind turn base at 80 turn final at 70 and cross the threshold at 65 to 60. And, and and in round numbers that works pretty good. That's not going to get you a max performance landing, but it's a it's a pretty easy, comfortable pattern. And and the key is if you're if if you're crossing the threshold at 70 or 75, you're That's making your life yeah, way too hard. You're making it hard on yourself. You got to get slower. It, it it gets a little it gets a little bit uh more sensitive in ground effect when you're fighting with it, you know, so um, you're better off being way slower than that. Yes. Okay. Well, um, moving on, let's, uh, let's talk uh, briefly about slow flight and stall behavior. So uh, Gary, I know this is something that we've talked extensively about describe and and let's put it in comparison to other airplanes, describe slow flight and stall in a Sonics. Um, Slow flight in a Sonics. Well, Dang slow, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, you know, you do all the typical things. You know, typically, if I was teaching it, you know, you do your 45 you know, degree clearing turns. You know, you start bringing the power back, hitting flaps at appropriate flap speed, start trimming it up uh, so that by the time you roll back on your heading, that you want to establish your minimal controllable airspeed, you got full of flaps in, and you're starting to approach the, the bottom of the white arc then. Um, it's going to take quite a bit of power still. Uh, I wouldn't say it takes full power even in the aerobee to do that, you know, with one person doing minimal controllable airspeed. Uh, the controls, though, get extremely mushy, I find. I mean, it, you really you talk about light and taking a lot more control deflection. I noticed that really quite a bit. Um, I don't know if it really took as much. I mean, it, it took any more control deflection, but because we've talked about before, the control forces are so light. Uh, it, it was just kind of like noticeable. It just really feels really, really mushy. Uh, just kind of like you're putting your hand in jello kind of thing to, to get things pushed around, but still controllable. Uh, I still had quite a bit of, of aileron control, even at the very, very slow, slow speeds. And, but I found the rudder was really particularly effective. Uh, so if you have problems or you're getting down the really low, low, uh, airspeed regimes and you're starting to roll off, please remember to use your rudder kick that rudder in to bring your wings level rather than trying to use ailerons. Because as we know, you know, at, at near at critical angle attacks, as you feed in that aileron to try to bring your wings level, you basically increase the angle of attack on the wing that's already fallen down. And that's how you get into the stall spin scenario. So use the rudder, use the rudder. When you get down to the stall uh, regimen, we don't have stall warnings on our, on our things. So we have to kind of listen and feel. Of course, it gets kind of quiet. Uh, but the, the plane really shakes and rumbles to me. And as you know, we got these big side panels on these Sonics. 
and the reverberation really becomes noticeable when you get down to that that stall environment where the where the slipstream starting to buffet and beating up on the fuselage. So uh, that's another good audible clue as well. And sometimes I've got my speed so slow, I, I know my airspeed indicator was not accurate at all. It would doubt be down to the 30s, and I know I'm not really quite that low. I just think it's indicated airspeed error, you know, at that point. You get a lot of control feel feedback as you're in slow flight. You'll get some uh, some stick movement. You'll get some buffeting through the airframe. Um, I'm really pleased with the amount of feedback the airframe gives you. If if you inadvertently stall the Sonics, you are really not paying attention at all. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, if we want to carry it on a little bit farther on, when we go from stall, if we happen to enter, enter into a spin, um, I like the spins in the Sonics. I, I thought they were very stable, very predictable. Uh, I didn't want to porpoise or wander any at all. And as you know, in some of my videos, I've, I've posted some, you know, at least turn spins uh, from altitude. And if you do nothing else other than taking your hands off the stick and, and feed off the controls, it will self-right about three quarters of a turn and get back to a controllable attitude that you can then manage in, in conventional aspects. So it does recover very well out of spins, and they're, they're really nothing to be afraid of if, you, if you're configured appropriately and comfortable doing them. All right, so uh, as we put this episode to bed, um, we talked about the various handling uh, qualities. Um, I guess the last thing, and I'll just wrap this up uh, briefly myself, you're going to inevitably hear comparisons to other GA airplanes, Cessnas, Pipers, probably the best GA airplane that is the, is a, a good approximation for a Sonics. That sporty handling is something like a Bonanza or maybe a Grumman or something like that. There's really not a lot of, particular parallels in the GA fleet. When you talk about experimental airplanes, uh, something like an RV uh, is going to be a very close approximation, or one of those other low-wing LSAs like a GoBosh or an Evector or Piper Sport, something a little sportier in handling. So if you're looking for transition training, and I know we've done episodes on transition training, that's the kind of thing you want to look for. Low-wing LSA, RV, something like that. Grumman would be about the only thing that would really kind of give you a good approximation for, for feel. So I guess just a, a final thought on this, you know, why do we enjoy flying the uh, Sonic so much? Well, really, it, it's just about that certain something. It just has a feel that just, it, it's predictable, it's responsive, it goes where you think, and you don't have to work hard, and it just makes you feel like an awesome pilot, probably probably unwarranted, but it makes you look good, and it's just a, a really, really rewarding pleasant flying airplane and i love to get mine out and just maneuver it and uh, i i could do that just over and over again so so in a nutshell that's uh, our attempt to try to put some definition to the sonics handling qualities the personality of the airplane fits the mission of the sonics just perfectly it's simple strong easy to build it's affordable and it's just an overall fun flying airplane and and you feel that every time you get out and go fly it so my final thought is really a challenge uh, out to you guys. So for the Sonics pilots that are out there flying, he here's what I challenge you to do. Go introduce one of your flying buddies to a Sonics. Maybe you're at an EAA chapter meeting and they have another airplane or they're not particularly interested in a Sonics. Doesn't matter. Go find somebody new, put them in the airplane with you, and just go introduce them to how great flying the Sonics really is. 
we need to spread the word. We need to, to grow the community and getting converts from within is, is a great way to do it. So go out there, find some people. Don't just fly some kids around. Go fly some of your pilot buddies and show them what it's all about. Help them see the true beauty of the Sonics. And uh, sometimes people are not immediately drawn to the Sonics. But once you fly in it, it really starts to grow on you. And that's the key to, to growing the population. So get out there and do that. All right, so uh, the last thing, I got a quick shout out for the Sonics Builder and Pilots Foundation. Yeah, so you guys all know the foundation. They do some great work behind the scenes. They support the Sonics community. And they're, they're really hard at work developing materials that promote safety, not just in the Sonics, but really in experimental airplanes in general. They got a great newsletter they put out that relies on your submissions. So if you got something interesting, write it up and send it to them. And they're really working on our behalf. So they need your support. And so get out there and do that. So I want to thank you guys. A great episode, great discussion, and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, Gary, I'll be looking forward to flying in that uh, cruiser of yours. Uh, looking forward to see all you guys when we get to uh, to Reclaw later this month. For the rest of you, get out and uh, attend one of those regional Sonics fly-ins. Come to Reclaw, go to Critters, uh, any of those other organizations that, that put on regional fly-ins. Get out there and support them. That's half the fun is just getting together with your flying buddies, and especially Sonics flying buddies. So get out there and do that while the weather's good. You can find us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can subscribe to Sonics Flight using iTunes or Google Play or your favorite podcast app. And you can find the show notes online at sonicsflight.com slash 27. Lastly, get online, uh, get our email, uh, send us an email, send us a note. You can send it through the website or you can send it directly to feedback at sonicsflight.com. Tell us what you think of the show. If you have a suggestion or you would like to see us cover a topic, Drop us a note. Let us know what's on your mind. We will try to work those into the rotation. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up, but we're always looking for things that are really uh, kind of fresh and on on the top of people's to-do list for episodes. And with that, guys, uh, thanks again. Always a pleasure talking to you. Can't wait to see y'all at We're going to tear the sky up, and uh, we're going to have a good time. So with that, thanks, everybody. Fly safely. Views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Select podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. Well, I can tell you, I was surprised about my recent episode of trying to get insurance. How much you paid, Gary? <laughs> I haven't, I haven't bought it actually yet. <laughs> oh, you just never did. <clears throat> no, I just, just want to hear Gary's story on his first <clears throat> flight with the Zenith. So yeah, I went naked for my first five hours here. I <laughs> hope you did. I really it do. It was chilly too. I got to tell you. <laughs> I, I saw the video, and you were naked from the waist down. Apparently, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, wide the air was just, cold. The air was cold. The wide angle just wouldn't catch it all. So I, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs>